we, I mean, we were attacking all the time uh, and, and moving north all the time. But uh, it, it was something we did every day. Uh, no, I don't think it was uh, all that remarkable. series that hears the stories and memories of ordinary New Zealanders who fought to eradicate the Nazi and fascist domination of Italy between 1943 and 1945. Episode 7 Towards Florence Having taken the town of Sora in late May 1944, the New Zealand division had been rested there for several weeks and managed to catch their breath after the fighting in Casino and the mountains. The many losses sustained by the infantry through those killed and wounded in Casino and in the mountain fighting that followed meant that reinforcements were needed. Bryn Hughes was one of those soldiers who joined the division at this time as a reinforcement. He had already served a couple of years in the army at home in New Zealand and we start this episode with his story of getting to Italy and joining the division. After almost three years in the army, camped training at Waiuru, Solway Showgrounds and eventually Linton Army Camp, Bryn got his orders for embarkation overseas. He recalls his final leave at home before boarding the ship with the 12th reinforcements. Uh, yeah, it was pretty quiet at home. Uh, I said hooray to one or two, because where Dad was, he drew a return soldier's block of the First War, and they were all returned punters. Uh, and there was a few of them handy, I had time to go and say hooray to. One of my schoolmates that was killed towards the end, about three weeks before Trieste, I think it was, uh, he was in a different unit to me. Uh, we went away at the same time. We went to primary and high school together, uh, along with some others. We all didn't know what ahead, was ahead of us, and our fathers never said much. I know Dad said to me that he'd take my place after Gallipoli and France. He said, I've had my life, son. I said, like hell, Dad, after that Gallipoli episode. I'm doing my turn. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I can remember when we left Annaberg on the, on the train to go back to Linton. Uh, first time Dad put her arms around me virtually and then kissed me on the cheek and I could see the tears being nearly coming, but he hung on, yeah. Of course, Mum weeped a bit, yeah. So, so we went down to Wellington and there was quite a crowd 
on the wharf to wave us goodbye. And, uh, and as I said before, we pulled into Hobart uh, for the night and uh, went out the next morning and we struck a storm in the Australian Bight and she was abusing. Oh, everybody sort of clamoured for the deck, but uh, it was chock-a-block. You know, people were just about lying on one another, trying to hang on and sick. I hate sailing boats. And uh, so while we were at Hobart, uh, we had the third echelon going back with us who had been home on leave, on leave and uh, yeah, a lot of them jumped ship and we never saw them again. And uh, yeah, it was a bit of a cruel thing to do, I felt. And a lot of other yeah, boys that were there that going with me said, fancy coming back home and then having to go back again. So how many arrived back, I don't know, but a damn lot jumped ship. And yeah, we went up to, uh, through the Suez Canal and uh, got off there and went by train out to Marty Camp. And there's wogs, as we call them, and gypsums. At any little railway stop we lined up with oranges and that to exchange for biscuits or whatever we might have had. And uh, yeah, one fellow was, and we were warned not to lean out the windows with our hands out or your watch will go. And one fellow, a couple of windows along from me, after a while he realised his is gone. I said, you're warned, mate, you're warned. But the bloke that was trying to talk me into taking some oranges, he handed them a couple in his hand. And he said, you give me the biscuits and I'll give you the oranges. I took the oranges in my right hand, fortunately. And he hung on, but I pulled half of them out and I threw it, hit him in the face with the squashed oranges. And they stoned our carriage from outside, we had to put the close the shutters up, or we'd smash, we'd smash the windows. So I can't remember what time of the night we got to Marty. I think it was about midnight, and we were in those big huts that they had for us, just down on the uh, palliasses on the floor, and uh, just went on from there. Uh, Manoeuvres out in the desert. Yeah, I was pleased that because uh, there was army vehicles with us for different operations we had to. We used to do uh, uh, rifle uh, firing targets, uh, two-inch mortars. Had to give them a spot to see how close we could block it off with a smoke screen shell. Mm. So, I uh, can't remember, we left for Bari. We used to go down and leave in Cairo, but that was a hell of a place. Just the flies there and kids, flies hanging out their eyes, I never bothered to wipe them away. Terrible sight.
They had clubs there, army clubs, they could go and get a cup of tea and now and again they'd have a, a girl or a couple of girls uh, singing to us or somebody playing the piano. We'd go along of an evening. And then we left by ship with Marty for a few months uh, and went over to Bari. And about that stage, I think the casino episode had started, and we were in Camp at Bari. I had a camp there. It's a port, and ships used to come in there. And uh, yeah, we'd have leave there to go downtown and whatever. I went to one or two operas, which I love that sort of music. And. Uh, the uh, training was, oh, we had to go for marches still to keep our fitness up. And uh, we left there, oh, just, probably just before Casino finished, because by the time we got up there, it was all over. And it was just a sight you wouldn't believe you'd see, just mud because it had rained through the winter there. Uh, mud, uh, vehicles, they hadn't been able to get out. The stench of dead bodies, they hadn't got out. Yeah, it was shocking up there. And the Monte Casino itself was flattened. Uh, that was done by the bombers, the American bombers too, and the Germans had left by the time I went through, or the Div had gone up to the Leary Valley where they were out resting for a while, and uh, so we, fortunately, I thought we were fortunate to get to know somebody where you allotted to. I was. Uh, put into the 22nd Battalion, 2nd Platoon, 2nd Section. And Jim Sherritt, a Gisborne fellow, he used to play in the all-black team over there, Arms Forces team. He was my platoon commander and a damn good soldier, good fellow. I was shared a bivvy with him at the uh, Leary Valley. By this time, Clem Hollies had been moved from his role as a frontline platoon commander into divisional headquarters. I got a tap on the shoulder and they said, oh, Lieutenant Hollies, you're going tomorrow you to report to divisional headquarters. I thought, oh my God. Yes, so they made me a, a liaison officer at uh, divisional headquarters. I think the reason would be the one to keep me out of trouble. See, we're getting pretty close to coming home by this stage. It was three and a half years. And anyway, I, uh, I had six... No, four months, four months of divisional headquarters, and uh, that was very nice. I had my own jeep and a driver, and uh, a congenial company. In fact, we uh, we had a, a very, very good uh, uh, mess there. The the fellow that were in it, and uh, we the two G G twos for the New Zealand division were uh, were a fellow called uh, uh, Jeffrey Cox. We both heard of Cox. He was. He was got a knighthood from the British, and and, and Dan Davin, and Davin was 
was uh, both Rhodes Scholars, very bright boys. And of course Dan was a very down to, he was a South Islander too. And I've always remembered we, we, we all had our own tents and we always got virtually ordered to come to Dan's tent of a night to imbibe. He always had good wine. Dan had a way of getting good wine. So we used to imbibe. But of course, we used to chat with it. Then it had, everyone would go quiet and Dan would then talk and tell us all of his experiences in the South. It was rather lovely, really. We were just sit, like sitting at his feet just about listening to, to Dan Davin talk. And the other story I've got for... Uh, the divisional headquarters about about our general General Freiburg, uh, to show his human side. Uh, uh, one of our jobs there was to uh, was to man what they call the uh, uh, ACV Armoured Command Vehicle. It was a big, huge caravan. It had all the uh, um, uh, wireless and that for, for the you know, it was collected all the information of for the division, and I'll, I'll never forget. On one wall was a big map, and they had a, a corporal draftsman. He was there, and as the messages came through, he'd adjust the lines of all the different divisions moving up up Italy because it was it was a fluid war. Then I'll never forget the night the the general came in. I saluted him and said, good evening, sir. He said, oh, he's the, he strolls over to the map and he stands and he looks at it and he says, hmm, now what do you think, Corporal? And the Corporal, well, sir, I think what we should do, we should move so-and-so. And here's the, the General and the Corporal having a, a real talk. In fact, it almost got about into an argument. It was right at one stage. They, they moved these these divisions around with impunity. And that shows the human face of, of, of tiny Freiburg. You know, he, he was a very, very fine man. Yeah. We, we, I'll tell you something that's interesting. Too. We, we had to... Um, the main thing was we had to... We, we had. A, I was a liaison between divisional headquarters and five brigade, and then we had a liaison off of five brigade down to the battalions. You know, but this was a poor. We had to take documents, uh, maps, and things that couldn't be sent by wireless. Or the, we had to deliver those, and also we had to uh, man this ACV at night, and also we we also. Um, Carted VIPs around the place. This is <laughs> what happened to me. One one day they said, "Holly's coming. You, you've got to take someone to the generals." He had the Freiburg had a had a landing strip. He had his own aircraft landing strip about a few miles away. They said, "I know where it is." They said, "Okay, you take um, you, you take this gen this British officer." To, it was General Alexander, believe it or not. It was General Alexander. So I carted that Alexander, and he was a nice man, a very affable, nice to talk to. My experience of General, I'm just reading a book all about him in here. And uh, anyway, he, he uh, I, I transported him, and I also at one stage had a lease, and General Lease was the uh, commander of the um, forces of Italy, you know, well up the scale. There were two top, top blokes here. By July 1944, while the New Zealanders took their well-earned break, the rest of the Allied war machine had ploughed on north and now Rome had been liberated, and the Allies were closing in on the next great objective, the city of Florence. It was there that the Germans had set up their next major defensive line, known as the Paula Line, south of the city. 
and the New Zealanders were once again brought into the battle zone to tackle the well-prepared enemy. One of the ELOs, you asked me what the ELOs' jobs were, one of their jobs too was why, I don't know, was to lead the, the div headquarters whenever they moved and of course those at that stage the fighting was really very fluid we were on the move all the time and, and so I got the job of leading the, the divisional headquarters with all the ruddy trucks and anti-tank guns and the general's caravan and I was the lead and I got lost Everybody got lost. Oh, see, the trouble was, we used to send out a, an advance party. He used to find a, 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 a good area for them to, to bivouac, and then they'd send a message back, or one of them would come back and say, "Well, now that's that's suitable place." So we had to get. Of course, we had to only do it through a map, and either Italian maps were not very reliable. So I remember saying to my driver, "Oh God," I said, "I think we'll have to turn." And of course, he just about fell over. He said, well, you can't do that. And I, I came to a branch on the road and I thought, which way do I go, left or right? Because one's going to be wrong. And I, I'm left-handed, so I'll go left. I'll pick the right one. <laughs> but the other story about that too, of course, talk about being lost. We got there. Uh, Brigadier Stewart. Stewart was the... Was the, uh, was the uh, uh, 5th Brigade commander at that stage, he was a regular soldier. He got picked up there too, he got taken prisoner there because well, he, he went to find the Maoris and they, he got a mile ahead of them because they told him where their headquarters was and it was, it was even, they, were a, they were a mile back from where they told him because he blindly went through and it was a German place he got picked up and so he spent most of the rest of the war in a prison of war camp, didn't he? <laughs> oh, he was a nice guy, Stuart. Yeah. And the Germans then started to really retreat and it was a chasing game, really. At times we caught up with them and there were bits of skirmishes and so on. Um, and quite often I, as platoon sergeant, when we were going into position, I'd be sent in the night before to spy out the positions and uh, talk to just uh, the occupying people there. Uh, sometimes they couldn't, you couldn't talk to them. On one occasion we relieved the Gurkhas. Uh, another time it was Polish troops uh, and they couldn't speak any English. Uh, but at least you could see the, the general layout. And so then you would go out again and meet your own boys coming in the following night and lead them in uh, to their position. So quite often you'd go a couple of nights without any sleep um, and plus a heck of a lot of exertion. <laughs> so you needed to be young and fit and we found that men, um, had some men, um, you know, in their late thirties. Um, depends on their occupation. If, if there were men that had been hardened by lots of farm work or bush work or whatever, um, they could perhaps stand it. But uh, if they'd come out of an office, and so on, it, you know, they, we found that before long we'd be carrying their rifles or whatever to lighten the load for them. Um, until we, uh, we got up towards uh, Florence, 
um, and I was sent ahead on this occasion to find a place for the plat uh, platoon to occupy. Uh, the Germans had retreated out of this particular place, so I, I found uh, a colossal mansion. Um, it had belonged to some count or something or other. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that'll do us. <laughs> so I led the boys in there when they came back and it, it was an incredible place. Um, and we found the library was uh, probably just about as big as the whole of this uh, RSA here. Uh, and it was full of the most gorgeous paintings you had ever seen in your life. Some of them just huge, you know, whole walls of paintings. And evidently there'd been an art exhibition in Florence before the war broke out. And as the war got closer, they were worried about Florence being bombed. So they shifted all this exhibition out into this stately home. So I sent word back that, um, you know, what we'd found, and it wasn't long before there was a platoon of British provos, the British Army police, uh, were there to guard the door because they were just, uh, you know, world beaters, these incredibly valuable. Um, one of them had had a slash with a bayonet or something across it, but the rest appeared to be undamaged. Uh, so, yes, it was from there where they left um, to go to um, attack uh, San Michele. The division's battalions would be given different objectives to take along a well-spread-out front. Elements of 24 battalion were tasked with capturing the village of San Michele. This little village was to prove a very tough nut to crack. As they approached the village, 2nd Lieutenant Alan Ambury was caught by enemy fire. He was 96 at the time of this recording. I saw a casino, got into the casino, but didn't, wasn't there the whole time. I went in and carried ammo and tucker back to those houses that were cut off. And then from there we got out on the road and headed for San Michele. I never got to San Michele, I got to within a mile of it. The Jerry was sitting there, he was waiting for us. And on nearly to San Michele, a bomb dropped at my feet, a German mortar bomb. It blew four of us over, but it got two of my feet. I didn't have any, any spare tyre, that's all I had. <laughs> so, I was left for dead, but a little chap from Cambridge, Ivan Greenleys, we called him Skin. We'd been, he was in the headquarters section with me of the platoon. I had three sections, about 20 men under, under my command. He was the one that, when I was left for wounded, left for dead, they said, oh, he's a goner, he's out, out the monk. He said, no, chuck the old bee in. He said, he won't die. And I, I enjoyed seeing him when, I, when he came home from the war, but after me, it was good, good value. We had a good, good, good yap about the few blokes that we'd lived and fought with. 
but they, this little chap from Cambridge, Shin really said, tuck him in, he, he won't die. Uh, at San Michele, uh, I wasn't actually in San Michele, but I was back at headquarters. Uh, SIGs there didn't actually get into action there, but we were shelled quite a bit. And at that stage I was told, right, you're LOB, which was left out of battle. You're going to OCTU. Now OCTU is the Officer Cadet Training Unit. And of course you come out of there with a commission. Well, I didn't want a commission. You know, I'd been with these boys through thick and thin. And, and you become incredibly attached. You know, you're part of a, a unit. Some of them you may not particularly like, but, you know, you, you learn so much about human nature and handling men and so on. Um, however, um, so I was left, I was not far away, but I was left out of that battle of San Michele. Because Casino, oh yes, it was a bad scrap, but I don't, I don't think it was any worse than San Michele. Although San Michele was shorter, it didn't last as long, but I see that, that was rough. Because I was section leading by now. I led eight men into the attack that night, and I was the only survivor. Uh, some of the others had gone to hospital, and I'm sure they recovered. So I don't wish to suggest that they were all killed. Uh, uh, that was... Uh, uh, but it was, it was very willing, it was very rough. They were a crack unit of Germans that were defending that, and they let us know it. It was just a village. Uh, but it was the key to Florence. That's right. Oh, yes, I, yes, I overlooked that comment. Thank that, you. That once that fell, Florence fell. Yeah. Uh, well, we went to San Michele, and, and we, it was a bitter week fighting, and it was very, very bitter. It was just out of uh, eight or ten kilometres out of Florence. We were going in there, and uh, I was in carriers by this time with the mortar platoon, and uh, I was walking in front of my carrier with a sheet, a white sheet, over my back, so that he could, uh, could centre on that, and I was walking in the middle of the road in the dark. We're heading up into the uh, into the enemy uh, village of uh, San Michele. Norm Harris was one of the 24 battalion men who went right into the village of San Michele. It was only when they got into the village that all hell broke loose. Yeah, it looked like to be a guest of the Fruhrer was about the best we could hope for. Yeah. Uh, it came so near several times to complete annihilation and then somebody would hop in and do something and uh, we'd get a bit more time. The actual attack itself wasn't, wasn't all that severe. 
Um, but once we got onto the objective, they counterattacked and, and they laid it on. And at one stage they, they sent a Tiger tank down to deal with us. Uh, I hang my head in shame a bit. Some of us stood in the church uh, and uh, defended from there. Uh, but I, I think I could get away with it because I would think God meant us to get in the most the soundest building in the village. Uh, so that helps me to feel a bit more godly uh, than if uh, it hadn't have been like that. Uh, and the counter-attacking was what was most severe. It was very severe. They were good troops. My hell, they were. The best troops I ever met up with. Um, in that church that Norm spoke about, uh, they directed our artillery right onto themselves. Um, and that's really what saved it, was uh, the German forces attacking this place. A black I worked with was in the artillery and he reckoned in one week, he said, our regiment fired more bombs in that week than with uh, shells than we had fired in all of Casino, which was three months. It was more than three months there. And uh, I think that was bullshit. I doubt, I couldn't see that that was possible. But it was a very, very tricky time there. And there was a bloke named Swan from Palmerston North he, he was in a house there with his platoon and they'd captured a couple of Germans and, and some German tanks, two or three of them, had come into the, into the town and one of them came right up to where they were and they were below ground level and they're looking out of the window and this tray of things coming up close to them <coughs> and it's raising its bloody gun for some reason, this bloke told me, he said, I don't know why they was raising it. It was... Anyone knows the troops came near the ground. dangerous up there. And he said, Swanee stood up with a Piat gun, which was a terrible bloody thing to fire. And he stood up and he fired it. And he fired it where the turret was attached to the other part of it. And one man in our platoon, we had a funny-looking um, weapon called a peat gun. Um, and one man in our platoon, when this tank came down, and he was going to blow this building to bits, and he stepped forward and, and fired, I think, two shots with the peat gun. Uh, and one of them hit the gun mantle just where the gun swivels, and it must have jammed the gun. So it was pointing up, uh, sort of, to the top story of the church. And <clears throat> he fired it two or three times. He fired it at a track and it didn't stop it. But then he fired it at this where it was, and that stopped the bloody uh, thing from elevating or depressing or revolving. So it quietly backed off and the other tanks went with it. Whether it did damage inside, I don't know, but... Uh... Uh, the tank eventually, from what I understand, it uh, turned and went away again. 
So that one little thing probably saved the whole platoon. And uh, that night they loaded up the vehicle that O'Brien happened to be on. Bob O'Brien from TMF. Yeah, well, he, he was, that's where he got blown up. Um, Bob had this jeep with the driver. And there was quite a lot of uh, German prisoners taken. Um, and so uh, Bob offered to give them a ride. And it wasn't only Bob, uh, Gilbert Cooper was on the jeep as well. Um, now, I don't know what unit Gil was in. No, he wasn't in ours. Um, he certainly wasn't in our unit. Uh, but he was there as well, and he was just a rifleman, I think. Yeah, I think he was in A Company, wasn't he? Could have been A Company. Anyhow, um, he hopped on the jeep as well for a ride, and about five um, German prisoners. So there was the driver and Bob and Gilbert and all these prisoners, you see. And they started off down the road... Um, this is a story as Bob told it to me, and uh, the driver said to Bob, oh, you know, we're way overloaded, I can't drive this thing, because uh, he had no traction on his front wheels, the load must have been right at the back and, and lifting the, the front of the vehicle, <coughs> and so he ran off the actual uh, roadway onto the side, um, and that's when he ran over an anti-tank mine. I was uh, about, uh, I suppose about 700 metres away at the time, I suppose. My carrier had shed a bloody uh, um, The track had broke on it and we finished up in the bloody drain and we never went up to the town with, with the rest of the platoon. And I just stayed there and, and it was pretty dark and, and I couldn't get anyone to pull me out of the drain. And, and of course you're in full view of the enemy when you did get out of the drain. And uh, so we had to be, t uh, had to get someone, I got a tank in the blood and they finished to pull us out. And uh, we repaired the uh, track and got out of sight. And uh, But uh, anyway, I was, I was going up walking like that and there was a bloke in front of each carrier and there was six carriers in our outfit and and we got our blokes got through but uh, I, I got to the t uh, village and I had to come back to this bloody carrier and uh, get busy organizing something and it was pretty awkward and uh, anyway uh, Bob's carrier, uh, jeep, went up in the air and a sheet of flame, a great sheet of flame went up and from where I was with another bloke, we said, what the hell is that? We'd never seen anything like that and we were both blokes that had had about three years combat at that stage. And uh, we said, it must be one of these new flame-throwing bloody bomb things. No such thing, really, but we've been reading about flamethrowers and knew a bit about them too. And uh, so we we rushed up there, 
and I found Gil Cooper, he was a sergeant, he lived, he actually farmed where the Battle of Orakau was fought. Yeah, he owned that property. And he was with Bob, he was a sergeant with Bob, and Bob was a lieutenant. And uh, <coughs> he, he, was he was one of the casualties. And we found him, he was wandering around uh, complete days. He didn't know whether it were Arthur or Martha. And of course, killed the driver instantly. Um, Gilbert was blown totally across the other side of the road. Uh, and Bob was badly injured. And I think uh, four of the Germans were killed, as well as the driver. And we were finding bits of cheap and bits of this and that and the other thing. And uh, O'Brien was injured, he was unconscious. So we got them down to, uh, there was a big building about 800 metres away. Uh, big, I don't know what it was, it had a good big high stone wall around it. And, and uh, uh, well, up in the third story, or second, it was the top story. There was a bloody, what do you call those beds, um, four-poster four with a canopy. We took it and turned sleeping in this thing. You didn't sleep in the top story of any building that was likely to be have shells coming. They'd go through the tow roof. Uh, but we took it in turns and I went up there and I, I said, well, I, I, that's my first and last time in a bloody four-poster for me. I'm not sleeping upstairs anymore for any bastard. Enough bloody things going wrong when you're sleeping down low. And uh, Anyway, we got these blokes out of it and uh, I, I think Gil Cooper came back to us. He, he had back injuries rather than blast injuries. But Bob was... His brilliant military career came to a very... came to a very sort of... Sudden jolt. It was, it was a finish for him, and uh, I, we had a, a bloke in our outfit that used to take photos, and um, make them available. He was a postman, and he used to, he just so he didn't have to do soldiering, and he, uh, he had a thirty mil, uh, thirty-five mil camera, and he'd take these things and he'd mount them, and we could order from them, and he had a photo of this blown-up jeep. My four wheels missing and very dilapidated thing, and I got a, a, a two copies and brought one home and gave it to Bob. And when he was in business and a mechanic in Tiamuto, uh, uh, he had it up in his workshop there. Well, when we were at San Michele, our mortars weren't in the town. No, we were back about 400 metres in a house there and there was a, a cow shed, at least there was a, a barn and uh, there was a, a haystack there and <coughs> while they were there um, the haystack caused fire and they found that there was packing cases hidden in this thing. Some of the warehouses in Florence had come out into the rural areas and they'd hidden things in the farms. And in these packing cases in our area, there were fur coats. 
and uh, blokes rescued them from various uh, haystacks and they were changing hands for 12 pounds each and my driver he he begged borrowed and so forth and he bought one for his missus and he said to her he wrote he said this might be a wee bit big for you but it was all that was available uh, so if it's too big for you will it do for your mother she wrote back to him about three months later and she said we had that fur coat which arrived safely we had it valued and it was a Bashonsky valued at 150 pounds she said how does a bloke on 17 and 6 a week uh, be able to buy something like that and he said what do I tell her and uh, <coughs> oh we should just tell her that an Italian merchant bloke who saved his life pulled him in a pulled him out of a building that had been bombed or something, make up some bloody story, make a, make a hero yourself. And uh, I went up into San Michele after it was captured and I looked at the broken down, bombed out church and the priest was there and he'd been the parish priest for over 20 years there and he was looking around and he was a broken hearted old man. We uh, after uh, <coughs> Florence fell, or it might have been before, after uh, San Michele, we uh, had a little break and we went to a place about 20 miles uh, from Florence and uh, it was called Impoli and I'd never been in a position like it before since we had 10 days to a fortnight there. We, we took over from Gurkhas and they said, we're not very fiery here, which meant that it was a very quiet place. And uh, we were told, well, if you've got any brains, you won't stir the enemy up and you can have a quiet time. And I don't remember, actually, uh, well, we didn't fire. I don't think we fired in anger. And uh, they were up in the high country and we were in flat country. So they, were, they had the wood on us there. So we didn't, weren't going to choose it. We were told to move very quietly on the road, slowly, so we wouldn't raise dust. And uh, we moved into this place. And uh, another bloke and I had to go and reconnoiter a place to put our mortars down. And to put them in flat ground that's overlooked by a hill, it was a bloody problem. And we were wandering around in no man's land, which no one enjoyed. And we couldn't. Uh, we finished up. There was a drain that was about a metre deep. It was fairly wide. And there was maize in front of it that was full full height. I thought, oh, well, the maize will give us a bit of uh, muzzle blast coverage. <coughs> so we went back and told uh, the hierarchy, whoever they were, they were what, where, where we picked this. And we put our guns down there. Well, we had this position there, and I suppose we put the guns there. I don't remember manning them there. We were in a bit of a cowshed, but it was sort of a barn. And one end there was 
marrows, big ones, uh, melons, they were about that long. And they were stacked at one end and they were a creamy colour. And I think they must have been what the Americans call the muskmallow. Because we were sleeping in this room with these melons and the place absolutely reeked of these bloody things. We were glad to get out of it. They were good, they were edible, they were bloody nice, so like, a bit like a rock melon. And, uh, but uh, Americans, ca Americans came in and relieved us. And uh, we said, where's the officer? They said, oh, well, bloody officers don't come up here. They said, oh, they'd be busy somewhere else. And the sergeant, he wasn't very interested. When you, when you uh, relieve a b battalion or if they're relieving you, you've got to t tell each other where the enemy forward positions are, where our forward ones are, where our, our doctor's operating his RAP, where the <coughs> battalion headquarters are, where company headquarters are, and all this sort of thing. And and anything else you could think of, and uh, what times are dangerous, and uh, and what to expect there, and that sort of thing. And we were trying to tell the sergeant this, but he could speak Italian, and he was there were some bloody women there, girls there, and he was he was too interested in uh, doing a line with these bloody people, and showing off his bloody Italian, gabbling away flat out, and rushing around in a bloody uh, jeep flat out and we were trying to tell him that dust gives you away a position and when your position is given away you'll get shelled in no certain time. I think we were talking to a bloke that was in his first forward position since he'd been in the army and uh, I said to our group get ready to move as fast as you can without speeding when you can but Get out of it, don't have, have anything to delay us. And we were very, very happy to get out of it. Uh, but of all the positions that we occupied, we were in 12, about 12 in Italy. Uh, well, in Casino, we had about three or four positions, and that only counted as one out of the 12. And uh, we, uh, I don't ever remember being in a position where we never fired a shot in anger. Or, I don't actually remember one landing on us. But while we were looking for gun sites, we came across a, a brain carrier, and it had uh, the 4th Indian Division sign on it, and uh, it had gone over a mine and it broke a, the, the track and damaged to a bogey wheel a bit. <coughs> But it looked in mint condition, and there was a, uh, there was nothing in it, it was stripped, but there was a, a telescopic sight in alongside the driver in a recess there, and I thought, oh shit, I'll have that, but I'm not going to carry it with me. The legend, the rumour was during the war that if you were caught with a sniper rifle, you were um, killed immediately. So I wasn't going reconnoitering with a bloody thing in the hand. And we came back and uh, for some reason or other we didn't come back past the bloody Bren carrier, which I suppose was good reconnoitering. And uh, uh, so I didn't get that. Th but I went to Bowskill, uh, it was the Bren carrier, 
platoon, that was another platoon we had in headquarters company. I went to him and I told him, I saw this bloody carrier in there and I said it looked in mint condition. But it's, uh, it's got a damaged bogey and a damaged track. Oh, he said, hmm. And I said, we, we weren't fired at, but I said we were being a bit careful not to be exposed yourself. But you'd have to do any recovery after dark. Hmm, I should think about that. He said, we've got a clapped out bloody vehicles here, the whole bloody lot. He came back to me six months later and he said, you're a bastard. You're a prize bastard. You're an even worse than that. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, every six months they have a uh, check-up on all equipment. Every uh, You're issued with compasses and binoculars and pistols and various other stuff, your rifles even, and uh, all, the, all these things are numbered. And he said, we've just had a uh, circular from divisional headquarters wanting to know how we come to have a Bren carrier with number so-and-so in our list of... Uh, they had nine carrier, Bren carriers, I think. We had six now. And uh, the uh, records show that this carrier had been owned by the 4th Indian Division and had been uh, lost in action. How do you people be in possession of it? And would you please explain where, explain where number so-and-so was uh, that we haven't failed? He'd, be, he'd ditched it somewhere in... A, some bamboo or somewhere, and the authorities hadn't found it. And uh, so I was, I wasn't very popular. While 24 Battalion was capturing San Michele, 22 Battalion was capturing the nearby village of La Romola, just to the east, in an equally grim battle. And uh, yeah, I forgot what date it was. We moved on, and. Uh, we, our first experience of the real thing was at a village called La Romana and we had to approach it walking down a, a metal road a little bit away, quite a bit away, down onto a riverbed and there was uh, artillery guns, tank guns obviously going off and uh, some of the boys were getting a bit excited about it and we were told by our leaders that that's a long way away. And, uh, but they did shell along the river bed where we were making our approach to this village. Uh, so that wasn't very pleasant, you know, breaking up stones when they burst. There were a lot of small villages scattered around that area and each one the Germans made a sort of a strong point. So each one had to be winkled out separately. Samakali there, La Romana here. Just, just down the road and around the corner or something. La Romana. Well, it was a bad night for my battalion, I think because they lost about 40 killed in the attack on La Romana. Um, Yes, they got a fair, fair dusting there. 
I was doing a running backwards and forwards from St. Cassiano to La Romana and I'd take up food, ammunition. So I wasn't actually in the actual combat situation. I knew it was a bad night for and some of the stories they told me afterwards that I was coming back. And for our battalion it was probably a bit of full-scale engagement. Yeah, then we went further north and uh, our next object was or attack, so to speak, was on a hill approaching Florence and uh, our, one of our other companies, I can't remember which one it was now, they had had a go in the morning and were driven off and we were told that uh, we'd be going in at four o'clock in the afternoon and uh, we'd have support of our artillery with a creeping barrage that fire so far ahead here and then lift and go a little bit further and uh, yeah we were in a approached a olive grove at the foot of the hill almost and we were getting shelled, hitting these trees and that, and uh, it was our own guns dropping short in amongst us. And that was awesome. Well, I wouldn't say it was awesome. It was pretty tough. There was no hollow in the ground you could get down far enough, you know, to try and shelter yourself. Uh, I know one fellow a mate of mine from Taranaki too. Uh, he was wounded in the guts. And uh, it's sad when you see a fellow sitting there hanging on to himself. And then uh, the next morning we moved on up. Some of us, I just selected some of us to go up the hill. We passed a trench with two Germans in it. They had gone and yeah, one of the boys that was with me nicked his watch off his hand. I said, don't do that mate. I said, that might be one given by his parents or a girlfriend, but he stuck to it. So by the time, when we got to the top, they'd all gone and we could see Florence way in the distance and I think that was virtually the end of the Florence campaign, there's really no battle for the place, which was a good thing because it's a beautiful place, Florence. We didn't actually get to Florence. Um, I, I spoke to our colonel some years later because I was involved in another incident. And I asked him, you know, he said, Along with sort it was, said you're the Johnny on the spot, so you, you, you just had to make your decision. And he told me then that he had been, our battalion had been offered the victory parade in Florence. But he didn't think the men were in the right, the right mood to polish their boots and go on a fancy parade, so he declined and let the Canadians do it. So the Canadians got the glory of Captain Florence. Which, <laughs> And then out to our New Zealand trip from among the first, well, I think we're the first there. 
then, you know, broke through the, through the line. I think that was the, the Paula line, which something was something like about nine miles in depth from memory. So it was just a little thin line to break through, nine miles of it. Of course, the Germans would cite their anti-tank weapons and in all the strategic places. Yeah. Oh, I'll tell you what this Pete Lane did. Him and I went across the Arno. It was the Arno, not a very big river, the Arno, it goes through Florence. But him and I went over there before anybody. Yeah, we were, we were up on what we call the Twin Tits. We took the Twin Tits, uh, the two hills overlooking there, and I'll, there, so we, we were then, and, and of course it was a fair way. It'd be about mile and a mile and a half and we wanted to go and have a bloody look you know so we went down there and fiddled our way through the there and there's there's the streets and that and uh they had they had a few partisans around and you know they could see that we were palms and over english and then we crossed the creek and laughed we crossed there and oh where is it there we had quite a few vinos with them and everything come back and it wasn't about two or three days after that that uh, Florence officially fell. Yeah. And of course, we took Florence, New Zealanders, you know, and it's got the art. Uh, now, the, Af uh, the Africans, the Africans, they were on their right. And we were putting, we were attacking every night. Oh, we were bloody into it. And they, they got even. One part of it, 30 miles behind us, on, my, on our flank. And, and we were going like this, and we were chasing Jerry, and, uh, and, and you know, and the, and, and the, and the really uh, Africans, they, they weren't, weren't having to go, they were just taking up the slack. And it's, if you look in the books, I've got some of those books there, you'll see... Uh, that our tanks and the African tanks and in Florence, taken Florence, and they all got a silver fern on them. Yeah. Yeah, they got the silver fern on them. They're our tanks. Yeah. And that's quite, quite funny in about towns and that. We would take them, you know. But we never very seldom got the credit for taking the bloody town. <laughs> no, because we, we had to keep going. Yeah, get around it, you know. Yeah, <laughs> there was another fellow there. Uh, I was a, I knew him before the war. Eric Halstead. Halstead was later when he came. He was a member of Parliament. He was Minister of Customs, I think. Eric. Anyway, Eric was the official archivist for that. And he was a dear quarters. And Eric had met a contessa in Rome, and he wanted, and she'd given him a message for her sister in Florence. Of course, we were halfway between at this stage. And Eric wanted to get to Florence, and he didn't have a jeep because because he had had a caravan, so he all his stuff in the caravan, and I had the jeep. So he said, "Well, then we'll, we'll go up and see what Monty Fairbrother, who was the G1, and get an okay from him." So we went up and saw Monty, and Eric explained his problem, and Monty said, "Oh, yeah, I suppose you can go." He said, "But 
I don't care about you two, as long as you don't get that jeep knocked around, which was rather nice. Anyway, we, we headed north, and of course there was fighting still in the suburbs of Florence, up around Fiesoli, and we, we got came down to the Arno River, and of course all the bridges had been blown over the Arno, except the old Ponte Vecchio, which they didn't blow, uh, and, but they'd put a few Bailey bridges over the Brits had. And we looked down, we came over this, look, I said, God, Eric, we won't get over there because there was a red cap stopping the traffic and only waving special. And, and I said, we, we've got no authority really to go through into Florence. And Eric said, leave it to me. So he said, we're driving over, don't stop. He said, you just keep driving. So Eric stands up with the jeep and he waves official documents, he put some papers here, and the bloody red cap saluted us and waved us through. So anyway, we got into Florence, and of course, where we went, we, we were the first, or honestly, the first British Allied troops they'd seen. They went absolutely mad. They mobbed us. We were thrust flowers and brandy and cognac and you know, and bloody partisans shooting their rifles up in the air. Anyway, we, we eventually found, found the contest after <laughs> quite a struggle. And she was a nice lady, and actually her husband had been the harbour master at Genoa. Hmm. Yeah, but I think so. The Germans had probably kicked him out. They'd gone back to Florence. But anyway, that's the story of Florence. Nice city. I like Florence. In the next episode of Courage and Valour, the infantry move back to the Adriatic side of Italy. In this episode, You've heard, in order of appearance, Norm Harris, Bryn Hughes, Clem Hollies, Colin Murray, Alan Ambury, Harry Hopping, Pat Green, Jack Cummins, and Bluey Homewood. Courage and Valor would like to thank the Te Aumutu RSA for their assistance in the making of this episode. <laughs>